This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Group Tech. I am continuing my conversation with a number of different doctors about the thing we're all talking about, coronavirus. Obviously, Sabrina is here, and joining us now is L.A. psychotherapist John Silamparis. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, business must be booming. Let's be honest. (laughs) It is. It's booming from the home because we are relegated to telemedicine now. All of our offices are closed. So, yes, it's been very hectic the last three days. Could the nation's anxiety levels be any higher? Hard to say. You know, one of the reasons is that we're still in the dark about the true nature of the virus, how dangerous it really is. For example, we all know about the influenza flu virus, right? But we don't know a lot about coronavirus. So hence, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. But remember, anxiety feeds and prospers on uncertainty. And this is really all about uncertainty. Nobody, including myself, likes uncertainty, especially the kind of uncertainty that puts our lives and the lives of loved ones at stake. Not knowing things freaks people out. So I think that's what's happening. And you're doing what they're calling telemedicine. Are you doing sessions by phone? Are you doing them by Skype? What are you doing with your patients? Both. We're doing telephone sessions. But for the bulk of them, we are using um, video chat platforms like Zoom. We're using um, another one called VC. We can't use Skype because it's not HIPAA compliant. Um, So whatever means we can to stay connected with people because the social distancing for people with depression, uh, with anxiety, it kind of exacerbates the situation. Because you're a specialist in in OCD and phobias and panic disorders and social anxiety what are you seeing spike? Well, if you look at the statistics, OCD, in terms of the most popular types of OCDs that we see, and this has been for the last 10 years, is the germophobia, people afraid of catching illnesses. So, unfortunately, this is right in their, uh, right in their wheelhouse we, of, of phobia. Right in their wheelhouse. Exactly. So that's what we're seeing the most of. You know, people are terrified. They're not leaving their homes. Um, they are getting people to shop for them. Uh, they're terrified. They're wearing gloves. They're wearing masks at home, even though we know that masks don't really help you now. So that's what we're seeing the most of. So for me, I'm helping them with cognitive behavioral therapy tools, with mindfulness tools, with self-regulation tools to get them through each day. It's basically one day at a time. What are the cognitive tools you just said you were using? Well, one of them is we try to help people to monitor their what we call emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning is when we are so overwhelmed with so much fear that our emotions start to reason for us, meaning emotional reasoning makes us believe feelings are facts. We confuse feelings for facts. So literally, just because you feel scared about the coronavirus doesn't necessarily mean that you're in danger. 
it makes you evaluate things based on your emotions. So we help people to restructure their thinking about that. The other thing is, is I tell people to limit exposure to the news. You have to practice news wow. hygiene. News hygiene. News hygiene. In other what words, stay, stay up to date, <laughs> but don't saturate. Up to date, but don't saturate. Use Sabrina's, only, being, Sabrina's being very mean because I, I am not. Because I am 24-7. <laughs> And you're just as bad. I'm sending you all the updates, and then I hear you resending them, so you're not so innocent. <laughs> so practice hygiene and focus on, you know, try to only use respected sources. Like, just stick to the CDC. That's the most important one, the Centers for Diseases and Control. And also, you know, your local emergency response. But you don't need to obsess over the news. You need to turn off the news every now and then. Check in in the morning. Check in in the evening. But don't saturate it. It might make you feel a little bit more helpless. Also, here's another thing. Sometimes news reports we hear are appropriately sensationalized for the purposes of emphasis and to promote safety. Hyperbole and the natural inflation of the danger threat is exercised for a reason. So it's not meant to be dishonest, and we need to hear the facts. But sometimes too many facts in one day is too much. How are you dealing with people, though, who are truly terrifying. I mean, the stock market is in pretty much a free fall. Businesses are closing. How are you suggesting that people mitigate how to separate your feelings of the fear of the virus versus, oh my God, my life and livelihood are decimated? Right. So we have them focus on things they do have control over, which is I can monitor my emotional reasoning, as I said, I can limit my exposure to the news, and also I can try to maintain a sense of normalcy. Again, routines and activities might be temporarily disrupted, but go about your day as you normally would and focus on what you have today. Keep the structure in your life the same as you would with, for your family, too. And even though you're going to be indoors more often than you'd like in the next few weeks, the more normalcy you keep, the less you will be focused on the potential threats. If you don't do that, you're going to start to over-magnify your thoughts so much more, and hence too much idle time could cause you to over-magnify the situation and increase anxiety. I also tell people to try to acknowledge the anxiety. In other words, acknowledge and temporarily accept that uncertainty and the fear of uncertainty about the virus is what really scares you, not necessarily the virus itself. It's important to remember. Acknowledge that it's natural for you to go into threat response. That's what extreme anxiety is, it's a threat response based on the collective scare. So it's expected for you to feel this way. It means that your your built-in survival system is working properly. So our, our job is are... to reactivate the executive brain and think rationally instead of irrationally. And that applies to people who are scared financially right now as well. Like exactly. Basically everyone just needs to breathe. Exactly, because there's nothing you can do about it. If you, We know that if you go in and pull your money out now, that's how you lose money. If you wait it out the way you did in 08, things will rebound, and we know that they will. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of patience and working on what you can right now. Again, limiting news, emotional reactivity, and maintaining a sense of normalcy. Those three things a lot are very of, important. A lot of people are freaking out being <clears throat> trapped with their families. I know yes. I am you know, with my son who came home from college. And, you know, there's definitely some rubs. He spent the last year as a freshman 
doing what he wanted when he wanted, and now suddenly he's come home to rules. How do we lessen the conflict? Because let me tell you, there's been some conflict. Yes, there's constant reminding that I'm an adult, Mom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's similar to what I said before, that um, there's not much they can do about it right now, and they have to find a way to cooperate and to coexist. And that means having meetings where you're expecting, uh, respecting each other's boundaries. In terms of contamination, not using the same glasses, the same dishes, the same utensils. And basically just having, you know, powwows together with the family just to talk about each day and be able to get through it without getting on each other's nerves. People I can do that. You said about, you know, obviously the not contaminating. How do we actually keep from throwing those self-sort of marked up glasses at each other? Because let me tell you, there's a lot of people and a lot of my friends are dealing with their, you know, young adult children as well as young children. You know, everything has been a fight. It's one thing to say, discuss and keep boundaries. What is the best thing to do when you are dealing with a teenager, let's say, who isn't necessarily the most rational being in the world? Oh, wait a minute. How about husbands, wives, partners, sisters, brothers, all that? I was coming All that craziness. I was coming around to that. I was just trying to get personal. I don't want to wait for that. I don't want to wait for that. I've got emptiness. I want to know what to do with my husband right now. (laughs) Well, look, I always, whenever I do family therapy or couples therapy, and this would be no different, whenever there's conflict, I try to teach people healthy communication skills. It's not so much what you're angry about or what you're upset about or what you're irritable about. It's how you're communicating it. So I would get down and teach people communication skills where a certain of communication is what we want people to do, which is honest communication that I am um, imparting to you and communicating to you with that is respectful, it's kind, and it's in an I statement where I don't blame anybody. So I avoid aggressive communication where I put you down, I dominate you, I make fun of you, I tease you, and it's it's uh, not passive communication, which is I don't say anything and I keep my mouth shut and eventually it blows up later on. So I teach them assertive communication skills, and I would suggest that families try to do that as well. Is there something to be said for when things start to get, you know, hot and hot at home, to take a break and walk away from each other for five, ten minutes till everyone simmers down? Yes. I call that the five-minute rule. So whenever your anxiety spikes, whether it's about the coronavirus or because you're having domestic uh, irritability, I say pull back from the situation, and before you speak and act, take a moment and pause to reconstitute yourself. Go in the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, John, I'm 58 years old. I don't have to blow up at these people. And don't allow your emotional dysregulation to override the reasoning. Again, it comes back to uh, pulling out your emotional resources and, and reasoning with yourself so that you don't explode at people, which is not going to help. Self-regulation is key. Self-regulation is key. In fact, they're trying to teach it in schools, even before this whole thing happens. It's finding ways for you to get out of threat response and relax the body and allow yourself to respond in a more human way. Remember, that's the difference between us and animals. Animals don't do that. They act on instinct. We have brains that are bigger and much more intelligent, and we can stop and say, okay, hold on a second. I need the five-minute rule here. Yeah, well, we're seeing a lot of people making a lot of what I think are reckless 
decisions. There's been a number of celebrities that have, you know, one just came out today saying, I don't care, my freedom is more important, and we're seeing all these spring breakers. How do we get the message through to people who are literally resistant to it? I know. I, I saw a lot of those uh, reports this morning. It's very frustrating. It's a good question. You know, other than um, the, the messages we're getting from our administration, which has been slow, as we know, and maybe that has a lot to do with it, um, all we can do is put the word out and hope that people pay attention to this. I hope they don't wait to see the escalation of deaths to really realize that um, they need to take care of themselves and others. I mean, you know, spreading the pandemic is simply being out all the time amongst people, and the fact that they don't see that is frustrating. But, you know, the groups of people that I worry about the most are the people that have existing mental health conditions and the elderly, because social distancing can make it much worse for them. It can worsen for those who are already isolated and lonely, and that's the groups of people that I worry about the most. Interesting. I, I work because for a, a mental health and suicide prevention group. I'm on the board of D.D. Hirsch, which is a Los Angeles-based yep. mental health and suicide prevention facility. We're talking about the potential of spike in, again, what you were just saying with our mental health patients and also with our suicide prevention lines, or what they call them now, lifelines, yes. getting overwhelmed. Yes. Are you concerned about that? I mean, you're saying, obviously, the social distancing, we've seen all these amazing... Uh, yes photos of people sitting outside senior citizens' homes and assisted living places having to talk to their parents or loved ones yep. through windows. I'm worried about it. Okay, could I, social isolation, distancing, could actually elicit deeper symptoms of depression and increase the alienation that most people with mental health conditions already feel. The medically endorsed social distancing uh, could also spike their anxiety about interacting with others and promote even further emotional withdrawal. So, yeah, we're doing our best to prevent infection, and we have to, but social distancing may have devastating consequences to groups of people, the elderly being one of them. Not only are they at high risk uh, of suffering serious medical complications from the coronavirus, because we know they're the most susceptible, but they are at high risk uh, for social distancing, too. We, we know they need personal care around the clock. They have lost friends and family. They have sensory impairments that prevent them from communicating effectively. So remember, human beings are social creatures. We have evolved over the millennia in this bubble of unavoidable interdependence with each other. That's how we cope with adversity. That's how we cope with tragedy, with catastrophe. And so social distancing challenges our fundamental human instinct to, you know, jointly um, seek support in bigger groups, whether it's family, friends, or neighbors. We don't, we don't live in a vacuum, Melissa. We don't. We all need each other, and social distancing is dangerous. Necessary, dangerous. Have a loved one or a family member or a friend who does have, you know, known mental health issues. What can we do to support them? Well, if we are respecting social distancing, and we should, and we should all do it collectively, we want to turn them on to these video chat platforms. You know, uh, some people, even elderly, can learn it. So it's staying connected via phone, text, email, but the video chatting, being able to look at the person, see your loved ones, 
Um, there are so many platforms to use. I would try to initiate that for them. And, um, you know, visits with people is okay as long as it's not groups of people. But if you don't want to go out, I would strongly promote the video chatting. When do you think it's time to take someone to the hospital? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that all these uh, emergency rooms and such are very overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. The mental health, I'm obviously very concerned about the mental health providers. If you have someone who has real issues, sadly, you may have been to the hospital. You may have had to take them in when they've been potentially ready to harm themselves. Do we still take those actions or do we push them further down the line? It's a great question. A really, really good question. Me personally, I will be, I would be taking somebody to the hospital, especially if it's a loved one. Um, but what do we do with the mentally, uh, the people with mental health conditions right now is we try to keep them connected as possible. Look, I work at two clinics and we have entirely switched to telemedicine and we are constantly uh, in touch with them three times per day. Sometimes they have two sessions per day. So they are very well connected. And if they start to decompensate and if they start to spiral down, we'll have to see what kind of actions we take. But we don't know. We haven't gotten there yet. How do you explain this to children? That's a really good question. Remember years ago when we used to say to people, even 9-11, we could say, you know, that's an isolated incident. These things don't happen very often, so it's not going to happen again, and you're safe with me. But this is different. You know, we have kind of an anomaly right now. I mean, that was an anomaly. It's not an anomaly anymore. The best thing to tell children is to tell them the truth. I wouldn't tell them about the death toll, but just explaining to them that they have to really be careful and that this will pass, and it's going to pass. But that right now the new normal is we have to take care of ourselves for a while. And right now when you're with me and you're at home, you are safe. And that mommy's hoarding Xanax. You're so funny. Huh? Oh, doctor, it's hard when everybody, we, we should see this as it's like a marathon where you just kind of want to sprint through it and have it be over. And, and mentally it's sometimes kind of hard to reset and just refocus that, okay, we're going to get through this and not have it just all overwhelm you in, in one second, because it is, you, you, you become so overloaded, whether it's the media or just everything around you. Um, it's like our senses are, are, are heightened at this point with, with everything that's going on. It, it's a difficult yes. time. It is. Remember, intense fear causes human beings to shift into this high-gear survival mode status which is also called the fight, flight, or freeze response system. And right now the country is gripped by that potential trauma or paralyzed by that threat response. But remember, the threat response is an adaptive function in the brain that has evolved over the millennia and it keeps us safe. So I think that once they get the testing down a little bit clearer, and uh, the vaccine supposedly is going to be a wow, but once they get the testing down and we have more information about this coronavirus, um, I think it's going to die down a little bit in terms of the fear. But you're right. It goes back to the original thing that I said, which is we're still in the dark about the true nature of this. And when we're in the dark about things, it freaks us out. So all we can do is manage the anxiety today. I cannot manage the anxiety about the market. It's very volatile. I cannot manage the anxiety about the spread of the virus. All I can do is take care of what I can take care of right now. That's the best thing I can do. So it's a little bit of the back to the one day at a time theory. Absolutely, yeah. Just worry about getting through today. Take care of your kids. You know, sanitize, wash hands. Um, and look, 
uh, again, the the connectedness via the the uh, chat platforms are so important because um, you know we don't know the short term effects of social isolation. We don't really have a lot of data on that. But because we know the, because we know long term social isolation is really bad. It's what happens with you know prisoners of war. Exactly. And, you know all these different things, and we know that they go they they generally go crazy. And more than that, okay, so law. Uh, social isolation for long periods of time leads to, listen to this, heart disease, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's, dementia, low self-esteem, depression, suicidal ideation, and sometimes death. So chronic loneliness can also impair your immune system. It can leave you vulnerable to disease, and it can boost inflammation, which can lead to arthritis and diabetes. Throw on top of that the fact that you have a pre-existing mental health condition, and this social isolation for a long period of time is very dangerous. It can have devastating effects. What do we do with the anger? I'm seeing a lot of people and a lot online about people getting really, really angry. Yeah. Uh, I, I see it as well, and I'm angry as well, too, because I feel like we are six to eight weeks behind the rest of the world with this treatment uh, and um you know, pulling our resources and stuff. Look, anger is a secondary emotion. So what I always tell people is whenever you're angry, think of the tip of the iceberg as your anger, and underneath the ocean there's a huge, huge piece, and that piece is usually fear or hurt. And in this case, this is fear. Anger is a reaction to fear. And so we try to tell people, pull back, again, that five-minute rule, and try to access the fact that right now you're scared, and just acknowledge that you're scared. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. There's good reason to be scared. Everyone's scared. We're all in this together. And so I try to tell people to break down the anger into what you're afraid of and accept that for now. You, you mentioned earlier that you are uh, working at clinics and stuff. What is your recommendation to us, the community, if we find ourselves like getting overwhelmed? Should we, you know, uh, call a hotline or what, what do we do? Do I mean, you've told us how to, like, self-regulate and, and different things. Sometimes people get to the point of no return. That's why you're finding, you know, people either attacking someone or just being aggressive or, you know, just acting out. You know, what, what do you say to that? What, what can you suggest? I say to reach out to a mental health professional. Reach out if you are a person of faith. You can reach out to clergy. You can reach out to family. But the idea is, is to not let your emotions override. So you need to pull back and reevaluate the situation. If you have a lot of anger, I think you probably need to go home. You need to go home and reconstitute yourself. Sometimes people take medication. If you need a sedative for now, for the time being, to lower your anxiety and your anger baseline, that's not a bad thing either to do. Keep yourself busy. Stay distracted. Play games at home. Do projects at home. Um, you know, do some exercise at home. Maybe you're doing work at home. The idea is to keep the mind as busy as possible. Is this a good time to take on projects like clean out your closet? Yes. You know, do some deep cleaning around your house, clean out the garage. Yep. Excellent time to do that. If you're afraid of going out, and you probably shouldn't go out, especially in large groups, projects at home would be the best thing to do. You know, here's another reason why it's good to reduce stress is the more you stress, the more susceptible you become to viruses because stress can negatively affect your immune system. 
When we're anxious, cortisol, which is the stress hormone, increases in the brain, and cortisol suppresses the immune system. So if you're more rational and you can learn to regulate your emotions better, the safer you will be. In short, the more anxious you are, the more vulnerable you are to illness, such as the coronavirus. So it behooves us to pump the brakes as often as possible, even with anger, and try our best to calm down and to be patient. That's something to remember. If you could give, you know, three pieces of advice on, you know, other than, you know, obviously that would just stay connected to people, what would they be, things we could do at home, meditate, exercise? I mean, what, what are your top three suggestions? As mentioned, staying in control of things that you do have control over and accepting that you don't have control over the market, the progression of the coronavirus and other things outside of your comfort zone. And so something folk- like what, what would you recommend to do that for yourself? What would be a it way would- to do this? It would be to access uh, a mental health professional online or to stay with supportive people that care for you and that you feel comfortable with, get busy at home with projects, as we mentioned before, whether it's cleaning out a closet, doing the kitchen, working on some new construction, whatever it is that you have uh, not worked on before. Focus on hobbies again. Um, there's Netflix. There's, you know... Uh, There are so many things that you can stay busy with, even though you might be experiencing some cabin fever. And then also try to regulate your emotions with mindfulness, with meditation, with exercise. You can do yoga at home and just trying to keep calm and patient. The toughest thing is going to be the patience because uh, without knowing the progression of all of this, this could be months. And it's a terrible thing to say because months seems like a long time. You know, if we told people this is all going to end in July or it's going to end June 15th, I think people would be fine with it and they'd be able to manage it from then, from now until then. But because we don't have that, that's what's making everybody so anxious. So that's what I would suggest to people. Consolidate your resources and do what you can at home to maintain normalcy and to try to stay busy with things that you do have control over. And how important is trying to get some physical exercise? Very important because movement of any kind and exercise makes you refocus from your mind to your body. In other words, the mind can't be in two places at once. That's why yoga works so well. Those poses that are hard to do, what happens? Your mind shifts from, oh, my God, my knees are hurting me or my thighs are aching or my back hurts. So physical exercise, um, stretching, all of that stuff makes the mind refocus And that also lowers the threat response. The threat response is so intense right now that when you do exercise, it helps the central nervous system calm down because your mind is focusing on your body instead of the over-magnified thoughts. My last question is about uh, animals and pets because there's been this huge, you know, increase and everybody now has a, you know, emotional support animal. Yes. Do you think that, that those are actually helping? Is there a way you can spend time with your pets that are going to make you feel better? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned that earlier. Other things we can do at home is, you know, spending, sounds corny, but quality time with your pets. You know, they use pets for people in hospitals who are, you know, suffering from anxiety and depression. Just petting a nice furry animal, a gentle animal, playing with an animal, really helps people's central nervous system. It elevates the mood and calms people down. So pets are very important now, and I bet you people are going to be applying a lot more for the emotional 
uh, service dogs and uh, animals. So we're going to see a rise in that as well. But yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That's really, really important. If you have a pet, spend time with your pet as much as possible. Doctor, I cannot thank you enough for all of this advice. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. You are amazing. Ah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for letting me on the show. I I had a good time talking to you all. Anytime this platform is open to you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.